0: The text which you probably recognize is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You recognize it because we have been through it 150 times since Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. You should be in John chapter 21 for our passage today. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank you that the gospel contains that promise and hope that Christ is risen. And because he is risen, we also will rise again. We know that the Son of Man will, will say the word and all who are in the tombs will stand before him. And we are grateful for that hope of eternal life that you have given to us. It is in Christ that we have placed our hope and our faith, our confidence and our trust. And it is a well-grounded faith because it is a faith in a Savior who conquered the grave. And so we thank you for that. And we thank you that you have made us to know that and open our eyes to it. And now we pray that as we think on these things and as we delight ourselves in your word, and as we think upon the the, the the fact of Christ's resurrection, the implications of it, that you would uh, cause our hearts to delight in the truth and incline our hearts to you and open our eyes. We pray that you would convince and convict and exhort and rebuke us as we need to be, and that you would be glorified through this time of study in your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're in John chapter 21. The Apostle Peter is probably the most... Uh, well-known and well-recognized of all of the 12 apostles who walked with Jesus. This is certainly due in part to the fact that in the Gospels, we see Peter taking a, a prominent or preeminent role among the disciples. Not that he was given a leadership role that made him the first Pontius of Rome or anything like that, but just his natural giftedness and tendency, his character, made him kind of rise to the surface among those 12 men. And so in the Gospels, we see Peter oftentimes... Speaking on behalf of all of the rest of the disciples, for better or for worse. There were times when Peter would just say what came to his mind, and you almost got the the feeling that Peter was speaking on behalf of the twelve, though they would never give voice to the things that Peter would say. And so out of all of the twelve disciples, the apostle Peter, the disciple Peter, kind of takes a preeminent, he's more dominantly or predominantly featured in the gospel. And then that continues on into the early church in the book of Acts. In chapters 1 through 12, Peter has a, a leadership role there as well. It is Peter who stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached to that group of people gathered from all of the nations that were there in Jerusalem that day. It was Peter who gave them the command to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. It was Peter who helped lead the 12 in baptizing those 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost. It was Peter who took a, an active leadership role in the early church. In the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, Um Really covers the life and ministry of Peter in and around Jerusalem. It was Peter with alongside of John who went up into Samaria to, to give some uh, credibility and authenticity to the fact that the Samaritans had received the gospel and been born again as well. It was Peter who, not Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, but it was Peter who first took the gospel to the Gentiles, to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And that happened, uh, before Paul was officially commissioned as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so we see Peter leading Leading in many ways uh, and, and standing out among the twelve early uh, of those twelve disciples, and then of course the, the the focus of Acts changes a little bit in Acts chapter thirteen, where Luke begins then to focus on the ministry and the calling of the apostle Paul. But Peter, though he is featured predominantly in the Gospels, and he is known for his role in the leadership in the early church, and even in Acts chapter fifteen, uh, where Peter takes a leading role in an early church controversy regarding circumcision and. The, the, the role of Gentiles in keeping the law uh, under the new covenant, it is perhaps Peter's denial that most marks him as memorable in in our eyes and in our minds. that denial that Peter that denial of Christ that Peter fell into is recorded in all four of the gospel records and we've seen it in the Gospel of John and though it makes it marks Peter for us, it doesn't it wasn't the end of his ministry and it certainly wasn't the end of his usefulness to the Lord. And I want you to turn back to John chapter 18 for just a moment. And we're going to just read over the passage that we already covered in 18 of Peter's denial of the Lord. And this is on the night of Jesus' arrest. He was arrested and brought to the courtyard of the high priest Annas. And there he stood trial before Annas, before actually his official trial before Caiaphas. And John records that trial in verses 19 to 24. But Peter's denial of the Lord is recorded in two stages in John. The first denial beginning in verse 15 of chapter 18, Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Just pause there for just a second. The other disciple there we come to find out is the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's it's John, the author of this gospel. Verse 17, Then the slave girl who kept the door and said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves, and Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And we skip verses 19 to 24, which is the account of the trial of Jesus before Annas, down in verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You're not one of this man's, of, of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Now John doesn't mention this, but Luke does in his account of the same incident. Uh, Luke mentions that the eyes of Jesus and the eyes of Peter met when that rooster crowed, that Peter looked and Jesus looked him in the eye. So they were both in the courtyard at that time, and Peter was overcome by grief, and he left the courtyard of the high priest. And now it is John, back in chapter 21, and you can turn back to there, John chapter 21. It is John who tells us the story of how Peter was restored to ministry, forgiven, and given back that position of leadership that he had enjoyed among the disciples. If it weren't for John, and John is the only one that records the restoration of Peter, if it weren't for John, we would have no idea how it was that this disciple, who was such a leader in the Gospels, but then famously disgraced himself and denied his Lord, how that same individual was then given a position of of preeminence and prominence among the apostles and took a leadership role on why anybody trusted him. If it weren't for John, we wouldn't have any idea how that one who fell so deeply and so severely was then restored to that his position of ministry that he enjoyed before. So that is one of the unique blessings, again, of the Gospel of John, is that John sort of fills in that gap of what became of Peter after he denied his Lord. So, in John chapter 21, today we're looking at verses 15 to 17 fifteen to seventeen and this was the this is the account of a conversation that Jesus had where Peter is again restored to that position of leadership and public trust and forgiven by his Lord. Now let me remind you of the scene. This is at the Sea of Tiberias. The Sea of Tiberius, also known as the Sea of Galilee, is a significant location because it was the area and location of many of Jesus' miracles that he did around that sea. It was also significantly the location where Jesus first called Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John to follow him. And it was in an incident recorded in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, that was very eerily similar to the miracle that Jesus had just done here in John 21, where they had fished all night long and caught nothing, and Jesus told them to throw their nets out one more time, on the right-hand side this time, which he does in John 21, but we're not given given that detail in uh, Luke chapter 5. But Jesus sovereignly in Luke 5, as he does in John 21, fills those nets full of fish. And, And they bring those fish in, and that is when Peter confesses his own sin. Depart from me, Lord, he says in Luke chapter 5, for I am a sinful man. It is that Peter recognized who he was, he recognized who his Lord was, and the Lord said then to Peter, from now on you will be fishing for men. And he called Peter to follow him. Now the whole scene is almost reconstructed again, this time after the resurrection. There's been a night without fish, and, and the net then full of fish, and they brought those to land, and then Jesus is going to restore Peter to ministry, which he says in verse 19, that Jesus, Peter was to follow him. That's a command to not only Peter, but also uh, in, in uh, including all the rest of the disciples who were there as well. So the scene is at the Sea of, of Galilee. It is very similar to the the place of Peter's, uh, and the circumstances are very similar to that of Peter's first initial call to ministry. And now Jesus is going to restore Peter to his position of ministry as well. And not only is the location similar to Peter's original call to ministry, the setting is very similar to Peter's denial, and this I think is intentional. Back in chapter 18, in the courtyard of the high priest, there was a fire of coals. And John mentions that on the seashore, Jesus made a fire of coals, and he was roasting fish over it, and bread over it. And that is significant. The Lord could have made a fire out of anything. He could have made lead burn if he wanted to do so. He could have had a bush burn that wasn't consumed. But the Lord chose coal, I think, intentionally to set the scene of Peter's public profession of his love for Christ, that it would be very similar Almost exact as Peter's public denial of his Lord back in chapter 18, around a fire of coal. So all of this now sets the stage for uh, Peter's restoration of ministry. Now why does Jesus do this? Why does Peter, why does Jesus restore Peter to his ministry? This had to be done because, it, for, first of all, it would be a public restoration and it needed to be public because Peter had denied the Lord publicly. Before witnesses, Peter had fallen, disgraced himself, denied his Lord, It would be before witnesses, now before six disciples, that Peter would be, that Peter would publicly profess his belief in Christ, his love for Christ, and be restored to ministry. And the Lord had to do this, I think, because there needed to be the removal of any cloud of suspicion over the Apostle Peter. Think of it, there would be a cloud over Peter, at least in the minds of the other disciples. The other six men, the other ten men would have been asking themselves, now this man who has had such a leadership role among us, who has been our spokesman in so many ways, who has taken such initiative, what is his role going to be now among us? We know that we are commissioned to go and preach. Jesus laid all of that out on the, on the night he was betrayed in that old upper room, that last discourse. We know what our command is. We know what he wants us to do. But what will Peter's role be? Will the Lord use Peter in this way? Should we, should we consider him as one of our equals, or is he in some way disgraced and defamed himself? Should he just go back to fishing and the rest of us take, off, take up where Jesus left off? See, in the minds of the disciples, this would need to happen so that there would be no doubt in their minds what Jesus' intention for Peter's life and ministry would be. And it would remove a cloud that hung over Peter in the minds of others who would hear Peter as well. Can you imagine those early Christians in the early years of the church when Peter went out to begin to preach, and then he would suffer, and then he would write a book like First Peter, which says to people you need to stand strong under persecution and be strong and look to the Lord and don't bend, uh, don't bow down, be courageous. Really, Peter? You're telling us to be courageous? Right? Without this kind of public restoration, the question would be, who are you to tell us how to handle persecution? Who are you to tell us to be courageous and bold and to share the gospel in the context of all of that? There would there would be a cloud over Peter in terms of anybody who would hear him questioning his Questioning his own ability to, to 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 address these issues and his own position of leadership among the disciples, and then there would be a cloud in Peter's mind: Can the Lord still use me? Does the Lord does that commission that I heard on the night before He was crucified? Does that still apply to me? Am I to go? Am I to be part of these men, or should I just sulk off into a corner and and suck my thumb in a fetal position in a corner somewhere and pout for the rest of my life? See this. This public restoration needed to ha- happen so that the disciples and everybody else and Peter would know I'm forgiven. I'm restored. The slate has been wiped clean. That past sin does not disqualify me from being useful to the Lord in the ways that the Lord would use me in in that way. So that is why all of this had to happen. I mean, it was kind of interesting as I was studying this passage, and we're going to get into it here in just a minute. Trust me. Um, as I was studying this passage, I was very intrigued to find how many different interpretations there are of some of the details of this restoration process. There are different ways of understanding the use of language and the different words that are used of Peter's love for Jesus and Jesus' love for Peter. And uh, I have three different books that I consult after I do my own study, three different commentaries, and all of them had kind of different takes on this whole thing. No matter, and we're going to get into some of those differences of interpretation, but no matter how you see some of the details of the passage, we always end up at the same place. This was a public restoration of Peter because of of his sin. It was intentional on behalf of Jesus to do this publicly, to restore him to that position of service. And Jesus is intending to question and get Peter to question the reality of his own love for Jesus all the way through the passage. So that's the goal of it, even though as we work our way through it, you may find yourself coming down on different sides of different interpretive issues in the passage. So now, let's go to the text. Let's go to the text. And here's what we're going to do today. We're going to work our way through verses 15 through 17. There are three questions here, three answers, and then three charges. And the same thing that is said in verse 15 is kind of repeated in different words in verse 16 and verse 17. Just as Peter denied the Lord three times publicly, he would profess his love for the Lord three times publicly. And just as Peter denied the Lord, he would confess his, his love for the Lord, and then he would be given the charge to shepherd the sheep, to pasture the sheep, and to tend the lambs, and those that would all be done three times as well. So this is somewhat repeated. Though so as you're going to see, there's a different emphasis that kind of works its way through the whole theme of this passage. And then next week, we're going to look more at the centrality of this love in our service to one another and in our service to the Lord and why love is, is an essential characteristic and, and why love was the central issue here in verses 15 to 17. All right, now let's look first at the very first question. In verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, and I just want you to remember that John skips over all of the breakfast, meal, and conversation. The last thing we read in verse 13 is Jesus took the bread and fish and gave it to them. And then John gives that parenthetical statement. This was the third appearance of the disciples. John kind of skips over any of the, well, I wouldn't even say that it was small talk. I was going to say the small talk around the meal, but you never know whether it was small talk or big talk. It's just that John skips over that and gets right to the issue of Peter's restoration in verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, it is interesting that Jesus, in addressing Peter, uses his, his name, Simon, son of John. And that's kind of curious, because I've been referring to him this whole time as Peter. And that really was the name that Jesus gave him back in John chapter 1, verse 42. Jesus changed his name and said to Peter, uh, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas. And then John notes, that's translated Peter. So Jesus is the one that gave him the name Peter, but his his real full given name was Simon, the Son of John and just to, in case you're curious, that John is a different John than the John that is the author of this gospel. The John that is the author of this gospel was not Peter's father. this was, was a different John. So why does Jesus use the Peter's old name Simon? Why doesn't Jesus address Peter as Peter since Jesus is the one that said you shall be called Peter. It seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Why does he use the name Simon? And this is where, again, some commentators, come up with wildly different answers to this question. Let me give you a few of the things that have been suggested. Some have said that this was to remind Peter that he had not at all acted acted like the rock that he was called, because the name Peter, Petros, means rock or stone. And so Jesus said, you are Simon, the son of John, but you shall be called rock or stone. Well, on the night of the arrest, did Peter act like a rock? Did Peter act like a stone? He didn't at all. And so some have suggested that this was Jesus' way of saying to Peter, you, you really didn't act like Petros, did you? You really didn't act like a stone or a rock, did you? You acted more like Simon, the son of John, the old Peter, the Peter that you were before I called you to, be, to myself. And some have suggested that that is what Jesus is actually implying here, that he is trying to remind Peter that, look, you come from a lowly, and humble beginnings, you're just the son of a fisherman, you're just the son of John, you're just Simon, and really until you met me, you were just an average fisherman. It might be also that Jesus is trying to remind Peter here of the day that Peter made that grand confession that's recorded in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Simon, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That grand confession that Peter gave in Matthew chapter 16, it might be that Jesus is trying to remind him, Peter, of what he had said and what he had known earlier. But most likely, I think, that Jesus is trying to remind Peter of that day when he called Peter to follow him. And he said to Peter, Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas. Jesus is taking him, as with the setting, with the fish, and the night spent without catching any fish, and the nets then full of fish, as with the charcoal fire, all of these details are intended to remind Peter of something. And I think that the name Simon, son of John, is intended to remind Peter of that day when Jesus said, you are Simon, the son of John, but you shall be called Cephas. It's almost as if Jesus intentionally is hitting the reboot button and going back to that day. and saying, remember when I called you to be a fisher of men and not a fisher of fish? Remember when I changed your name from Simon to Peter? Go back to that. I called you to follow me back then, and the commission and the calling has not changed, which is why he says in verse 19, follow me. So I think that that is the intention behind Jesus using that, that name, because you'll notice that, Even though Jesus' question changes all three of these times, it's a different question that's asked each of the three times. The beginning of it does not change. It's still Simon, son of John. Do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Second one, verse 17, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He never changes Peter's name. Though the question itself changes, that remains the same all the way through. I believe Jesus is taking him back to that first day that he called him. Now look at the question that Jesus asked in verse 15. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, wouldn't you like to know what the these refers to? Now, if I asked you, what do you how do you understand that question, you would probably give me one of three different answers, because there are three different ways that the language could be taken, because the these is not specific as to what Jesus is, is talking about. Though, and listen carefully, I think that Jesus understood what he was asking Peter, Peter understood what Jesus was asking him, and John understood what Jesus was asking Peter, I believe there was perfect understanding as to exactly the meaning of the question, but it doesn't come out in the English very good, and so we are left somewhat to speculate as to what exactly Jesus meant by these. You'll notice that it's not mentioned again in the second time that he asked the question. He drops the more than these, the comparison, in the second question, and it's not mentioned in the third either. But in the first question, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Who or what are the these? Well, there are three different ways of understanding the question. Here's the first one. It could be that Jesus was asking Peter, do you love me more than these men love me? Referring, comparing, he's asking Peter to compare Peter's love for Jesus with the love that John and Nathaniel and Andrew and the sons of Zebedee who were there as well, the other six disciples who were there at this time. He is asking Peter to compare his love for Jesus with the love of these other men. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these men love me. Now you say, why would Jesus ask Peter a question like that? Because Peter, out of all of the disciples, was the most uh, notorious for comparing his love and devotion for the Lord Jesus with the love and devotion of the other disciples. For instance, in Matthew chapter in Matthew chapter 26 verse 33, Peter said to Jesus, "Even though all may fall away because of you, I." will never fall away. See, it wasn't enough for Peter just to say, I will never leave you, I will never fall away, I will never betray you. Well, That wasn't enough for Peter. Peter had to say, even if everybody else falls away, I will never fall away. Even if everybody else leaves you, I will never leave you. See, the old Peter, the Peter of the Gospels, is a Peter who compared his love and devotion to the love and devotion of the other apostles, the other disciples. In John chapter 13, verse 37, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. See, Peter was the one who always had these, these, these bold and big proclamations of his love, his courage, his boldness, his fidelity and faithfulness to Jesus. And so it might be that Jesus is now saying to Peter, Peter, in the light of everything that has happened a couple weeks ago, remember around the last charcoal fire you stood next to, in light of that, are you still willing to say that you love me more than these men love me? Because these men didn't betray me. These men didn't deny me. These men didn't run off crying. These men didn't have to listen to the cock crow remind them of what they were doing. So are you now still willing to say, like you said before, that your love exceeds the love of these other men for me? That's the first possibility. And that's the, that, is the, that is what J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, an old 18th century uh, theologian, that's what he says is the meaning here behind Jesus' words. There's a second possibility. It could be that Jesus is not saying, do you love me more than these men love me, but do you love me more than do you love these men? And knows the difference between those two. Do you love me more than you love these men? Now, this, I think, is the weakest of the three options. But the, uh, the argument for it goes like this. Peter you're hanging out with these guys, and you're not hanging out with me. You denied me, but you haven't denied these guys. And so, Peter, where do your true affections lie? It is as if the Lord is saying, do you love me more than you love mother and father and brother and sister? Do you love me more than you love your, your other companions, your other human friends, your family members? Where do your true affections lie? You denied me, but now you're hanging with these guys. And that's a little bit slangy, but you denied me, but you haven't denied them. You're with them. So... Who has your true affection, Peter? Now, that, I think, is the weakest of the three options. The third option is this, that when Jesus says, do you love me more than these, he is referring not to the men and not to those men's love for Jesus, but the these refers to all of the accoutrements of the fishing that was going on, the boat, the nets, the tackle, the fish, and all of that. And so then that then becomes the symbol for Peter's former way of life, his old occupation. So then Jesus would be saying this, Peter, do you love me more than you love this old life? That you love the fish, that you love the fishing, and you love being part of this business. Because remember, Peter, I called you to be a fisher of men. So now here we are, and you're fishing again. So do you love me more than you love these things? So it's not referring to people at all. And that is the position that John MacArthur takes. Now, I find it awkward to have to disagree with either J.C. Arielle or John MacArthur. He say, well, which one of those do you think it really is? I would have to say that it depends on what day of the week that you ask me which one of those positions I take. But today, I would be inclined to think that what Jesus is doing here, I'm going to go with J.C. Ryle. I think what Jesus is doing here is asking Peter, are you still willing to profess so boldly your love for me? Because Peter drops the comparison entirely. When he just says, Lord, you know that I love you. And Peter doesn't compare himself with anything. Peter is a humbled and broken man at this point. Right? The, the same disciple who said, though all may fall away, I never will. I will die for you, hours later is denying him. And Peter knows that he is stuck with that, that hypocrisy and that failing, and it is right before his face. And Peter now realizes, I, I can't profess that kind of love so boldly and so over the top anymore at all. Peter is a humbled man. So I think that this is, is Peter, Jesus asking Peter, now how do you evaluate your love? Still think it's better than others? It seems to be make the most sense out of the passage. So now take a look at the answer. Look at the answer that Peter gives. He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus here appeals to, sorry, Peter appeals to Jesus' omniscience, his knowledge of Peter's heart. Peter knew that he was standing in front of somebody who could read his heart and read his mind and knew of his affections. And that is what Peter appeals to. And he says to Jesus, You know that I love you. And and Peter is content to to rest upon the fact that Christ knew his heart. Christ knew Peter's heart better than Peter knew his heart. And Peter realized that. Now, the 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 knowledge that Jesus knows our hearts better than we do and can read our hearts and knows everything about us, that is at the same time the most comforting thought and the most terrifying thought. It is comforting because even though there are times when I don't necessarily feel that love or I don't necessarily am not necessarily aware of my love for the Lord or There are times when I act as if I don't love the Lord. The Lord knows my heart enough to know that there is love there, even though I may fail to live up to the aspirations of that love that I have for the Lord and fail to do what he has called me to do or to ask me to do, or I have sinned in some way. I can always go back to the Lord and say, you know that I love you. You know this because I obey you. Even though I have failed in this way, you at least know that I have this affection for you. And I I can rest upon that. But at the same time, that's the most terrifying thought, because. He knows the condition of my heart. I can't fool him into thinking I love him when he knows that I don't love him. So since he knows me and he knows me better than I know myself and he knows my heart, it is a terrifying thought that I will not be able to pull anything over his eyes. I may be able to make all of you think that I love the Lord and I can do that even while there is no love for the Lord in my own heart. I can at least convince all of you that I love him and that I love him passionately. But if there's no love for the Lord, Though I may be able to convince you, I can never convince him. And I can never pull that past him. I can never pull that off. So it's comforting, isn't it? But it's terrifying as well, isn't it? Because he searches the heart. He knows the mind. And he knows whether that love is there in our hearts or not. And so Peter then confesses, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said at the end of verse 15, tend my lambs. The word tend there means to feed to care for is sort of a generic word for giving feed and, and care or tending something. And he uses the, the young word lambs. And you'll notice that there is a language, the, the, the word for a young sheep, which is lambs. Uh, you will notice there is a language change in verse 16 and verse 17 when Jesus gives the commission to Peter. He says in verse 16, shepherd my sheep. And there, the word is not tend. It's a different word. It's not bosco, which means to feed or to care for. It's the word poimain which means to shepherd. And it's the word that is used to describe the office or role of an elder or a pastor, or a shepherd, an overseer, and it is that idea of, and, and in the 16th one, the 16th verse, the, the word for shepherd there is a is a fuller, more robust word, and it has both the idea of feeding and caring for somebody, but also of defending and protecting and leading and guiding, and that's why the New Testament uses it, of the role of an elder. So Jesus uses a different word in the next, in verse 16. He also uses a different word, and he doesn't use lambs in verse 16 like he does in verse 15. In verse 16, Jesus uses the word sheep. And then down in verse 17, it's tend, the same word as used in verse 15, and it's not lambs, but sheep again. So there's a bit of a variety of language here, and this leads some people to say that the, the change of language on John's behalf is really just John's trying to use different words so it doesn't feel monotonous to the reader or to the listener. Other people say there is significance here, and if there is significance to the change of language between sheep and lambs, between feed or tend and shepherd, I think that the significance only rests in the fact that Jesus is here trying to use every every word that he can use to describe the fullness of Peter's ministry. It would be to the young, the weak, the fragile, the frail, the lambs, the new, the immature, as well as to the mature, the sheep, uh, 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 the more able, the more mature, the more strong of the flock of Christ. And if he is just using, uh, uh, if there is significance in the change of words between feed, and shepherd, I think Jesus is just trying to say this is Peter's role. It would be a teaching and feeding role. It would also be a protecting and guarding and a tender a care for the sheep role. So that is probably the significance of the change of language. But that is not the only change in language in the passage. And this gives us into a whole other interpretive area. When Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? He uses a Greek word for love that you're probably familiar with, agape. Agape was a different kind of love than other loves. Agape is what the ancients considered the highest form of love. It was the type of love that was sacrificial. It was committed. It was an all-in love. It was the type of love that was willing to give of itself to somebody else. A love that was, you could think of it as a one-directional love. It was me loving you, even if that love is never uh, requited, is never rewarded or paid back. It's a type of love that is willing to pour itself out, to somebody else, even if that somebody else never loves back or never returns anything for it. It's the highest, most sacrificial love. When it says that Christ loves his bride, the church, that's the love that is used. When it says that Christ loves sinners, that's the love that is used. When we are to love one another, that's the love that is used. Husbands loving their wives, it's agape love. The highest, most sacrificial uh, form of love. Uh, in First Corinthians 15, the love chapter, that's the type of love that is being described. But when Peter answers the Lord... He doesn't say, Lord, you know that I agape you. Peter uses a different word for love. Lord, you know that I phileo you. That word, that that love, is not the highest form of love. It's not the sacrificial, self-giving, one-directional love. The phileo love was a brotherly, affectionate, a kind-hearted love. It was a two-directional love. It was the type of love that brothers have, a phileo love, or close friends, close associates. Um, I am to love my wife with agape love, but I'm not to love her like I love Mel. But I have phileo love for Mel and Lanny and, and other people. That's, that's, a, that's a type of affection, a fond affection, a brotherly affection. That type of love, that's the type of love that Peter uses to just, that's the, that's the word that Peter uses to describe his love for Jesus. Peter, do you agape me? Or do you know that I phileo you? I have affection for you. You know this. Now remember, Peter is being asked, I think, are you willing to say that your love for me is greater than their love for me? And what is Peter doing? Lord, I'm, honestly, you know this. I cannot even say that I have that kind of love for you. He doesn't, he drops all comparisons with himself and the other disciples, all of that. I can come in right here, Lord, and say that I at least have a, a kind, brotherly affection for you, and you know that that affection is there. That's the change in language that is here. Now there is a second question, and the second question that Jesus asked is slightly different. It's in verse 16. Now the pattern is very similar, but it, it changes slightly. Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And that's the agape love. Now notice that Jesus here drops all form of comparison. Peter, Peter's not willing to compare himself to the other disciples or do any kind of comparison with his love at all. Peter just comes in on the on the bottom rung, as it were. Lord, you know that I have this kind of love. It's a it's a affection. It's a it's a tender hearted affection, a real feeling of love for you. You know that that is the case. He's not even willing to, to to compare his love for the Lord Jesus with theirs or with any other things, or even to say that he loves Jesus more than anything else. Peter's just an honest man. Lord, this is the type of love that I have. I have this love for you. And you know this. And so then Jesus drops the comparison, not willing to push the issue with Peter. Peter, do you agape me? And he asked Peter this a second time. Now notice Peter's response. Verse 16. He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I or you. Same word. Same word as the first one. His answer, Peter's answer does not change here. Lord, you know that I fully owe you. Now the third one. Verse seventeen. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? Why did why did it grieve Peter to hear that the third time? Because three times he had denied Jesus. And now Jesus intentionally asking him this question the third time. Peter got that. He understood what was going on. He understood that just as he had denied the Lord three times, he would profess his love for the Lord three times. This whole scene was intended to remind Peter of his fall. And Peter was vexed, and Peter was grieved by it. And I want you to notice something here. The Lord does not steer away from making Peter feel the weight of his own guilt in this scene. Do you notice that? Because dealing with sin can be a painful thing, It could be an uncomfortable thing. The Lord is not interested in making Peter feel comfortable or making Peter's life avoid the pain of having to confront his failure. That needed to be done. And the Lord, like a skillful surgeon, is cutting in the heart of Peter, exposing what Peter had done, exposing the reality of that, asking Peter to examine his own heart and where his love for Christ stood and how he would describe that. And this was a painful thing. It was a necessary thing, but a painful thing. And for us, dealing with sin is a necessary thing. But it can be a painful thing. When the Lord reveals it, opens it up, makes it public, right? Makes us to face the reality of who we are. That is a good thing. And though it is painful and it was painful for Peter, it was a necessary thing. Now, there is a bit of a different language change here, again, because Jesus is not. He is asking a similar or the same question three different times, but the wording in each one is different. The first time, Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter wouldn't go there. So Jesus dropped the comparison, asked the same question, Peter, do you love me? Agape. Peter said, Lord, you know, but I owe you. Now the third time that the Lord asked the question, the Lord doesn't use Agape, but He uses Phileo. Lord or uh, Peter, Simon, Simon, son of John, do you file me? And now he has come down to Peter's level, right? You see what he has done? Now some people think that there's no significance in the language change. I have a hard time, hard time buying that argument. I think that there is a significance to this language change. I think there is a significance to it in, in this. The Lord started off, Peter, do you have this kind of love for me? Or do you know I'm here? Peter, do you have this kind of love for me? I'm right here, Lord. Peter, do you really even have this kind of love for me? Do you really follow me? Now he is, he is taking Peter to where Peter is willing to go, but now he is asking Peter to even examine if he has that kind of love for him. That's even more crushing, isn't it? Now he is, now he's granting Peter's argument, as it were, He is allowing, he is allowing Peter's honesty, but now he is even examining that honesty. Now let's no longer even talk about this kind of love. Do you even have an affection for him? Do you even have an affection for him? And so then Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know all things. That has implications for how Peter viewed Jesus. Don't miss that. That is a statement of Jesus' omniscience. That he knows all things. Peter knew who he was standing in front of. He's standing in front of the risen Christ who is God in human flesh. This is the same Peter who in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1, would call Jesus our God and our Savior. He knows before whom he stands. And he says to him, You know all things. He searches the hearts, He tests the minds. He knows the condition of our love. He knows whether it is hot, whether it is cold, whether it is there, whether it is not what we have done to forsake it. He knows all of that. Lord, you know all things. And now Peter just says, you know that I fully owe you. Peter hasn't gone up to agape. Peter doesn't even boast in his agape love. This is a different Peter. Do you sense that? Though all may fall away, never me. Peter, do you love me? I have affection. You know that. And it doesn't even go beyond that. This is a broken Peter. This is not the Peter of the Gospels. This is a broken and humbled man. And that was the point of allowing Peter to be sifted like wheat. And for Peter to come out the other side of that, knowing that his faith had been tried as by fire and had been proved legitimate and genuine, Peter knew what that was like. And now being restored to ministry, Peter is brutally honest with his Lord. He can't hide anything from him. And and no more boasting, no more grand promises, no more super statements of his commitment and his boldness, just an honesty before the Lord. That's all Peter has to offer. That's all Peter needs to offer. That's all Peter offered. You know that I phileo you. There's nothing wrong with having that kind of love for the Lord. But Peter was humbled when he was forced to recognize that his love for the Lord, that that's what it was. The whole point of this exercise was to get Peter to ask himself, what is the condition of my love for the Lord? The whole point of this passage may be for you to get you to ask yourself, what is the condition of my own love for the Lord? The agape love, the phileo love, Is it even really there? Where there is no love, there is no life. That's the reality of it. A love for Christ, we may not feel it at all all the time. We may not experience it all the time. We may not be thinking of it all the time. We may at times even act like it's not what it should be, and maybe even act like it is not there. But is it there? That's the whole point of it. If you've fallen, then you examine yourself. What is the condition of my love for the Lord? Why don't you turn over to first Peter chapter five? Why don't you read three verses there with me and this with this we will close. First Peter chapter five. These are the words of a different man who got the point. Shepherd my sheep, tend my lambs, tend my sheep. 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter writes, and I want you to notice this humility. After talking about those who suffer and entrust their souls to a faithful creator, chapter 4 verse 19, and doing what is right, he is writing to persecuted Christians. This was written just a couple of years before Peter's death either shortly before or shortly after the beginning of the state-sponsored persecution of the church by Nero in 63 AD. Peter writes this, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I do not know how Peter could have written those words without thinking of that day on the beach. I'm just a fellow elder. Did Peter view himself as as the grand pontiff of the entire church? It's an elder. He's an elder. As your fellow elder. As one who has suffered for Christ, as one who he knew would suffer for Christ, Peter writes this, not as a grand leader, not as anybody lording his position over somebody else. I'm just a fellow elder. And I'm speaking to the other elders in the church, shepherd the flock. And then when the grand shepherd, the chief shepherd of the flock shall appear, we will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's what Peter looked for and he hoped for. How did he view himself? As one whose love and devotion and position and affection was greater than other men? He didn't view himself that way. He viewed himself as one of us, as a fellow elder, as one who served the people, And did so willingly, voluntarily, not for sordid gain, proving to be an example to the flock. Peter, Peter got the message, didn't he? Tend my sheep, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. He got that. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word, convicting as it is. We pray that you would, you would use it to examine the condition of our own hearts before you, and that you would be glorified to reprove us and rebuke us where our love waxes cold, where our hearts are unaffectionate to you. We pray that you would, cause our hearts to uh, love again the Lord Jesus Christ with that first love that we had back when we first came to know him and worship him. Thank you that you are able to do this and you will do this work in our hearts through your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would convict us and rebuke us as we need, that we may walk out of here changed and that our hearts may walk out of here full of love for our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.